Good morning. Welcome to everybody in the room. Those of you that are tuning in online, if you're on the atrium enjoying the sunshine, it's going to be a good week of sunshine here in Northern Colorado. If you're not in Northern Colorado, sorry. But if you weren't in Northern Colorado two weekends ago, good for you, because we got a whole bunch of snow. But uh, it's going to be a beautiful week this week. All that snow's going to melt. It's going to be fantastic. Wonderful. Good to see everybody. If you're a guest today, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads, and uh, I'm just grateful that you're with us today. I hope that you have a meaningful experience. If you are a guest today, and maybe you're like brand new to faith, and you're thinking to yourself, oh man, this is where it gets boring, you are right You are right, and uh, especially today, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm sorry, I just got to give you a fair warning that we're going to be here a while. Uh, I'm going to totally geek out on you today uh, because I want to talk about this thing called Palm Sunday, but I really want to do it in light of some historical realities. So, you know, I'll tell you when, but there will be a good time where if you're not a history person, like totally start doodling on those talk notes. Like just do whatever you got to take to survive that eight minutes of the message and uh, that'll be good. But uh, so good to say, but hey, before we jump in uh, on today's topic, since I'm going to go long anyway, may as well really go long. Uh, First of all, uh, this Friday is Good Friday. And uh, we have a tendency in our lives, especially in Western Christianity, to to jump to victory. Like, we are a triumphant people. Like, we just think about winning battles and being number one and on top. And so we want to jump to the resurrection. Uh, But here's what I would say to you about your soul. Uh, Your soul cannot appreciate resurrection until it walks through the pain of death. It just can't do it. And so you will, uh, and I don't mean this in like a condemning way or judgmental way, it's just the way the spiritual life works, is that you will be robbing yourself of the real joy of the resurrection uh, unless you walk through Good Friday. And so I really would encourage everybody to participate uh, in Good Friday. Uh, and so you can tune in online at 6.30. I would encourage you to tune in a little few minutes earlier, have something to eat and drink with you. We're gonna share in communion the Eucharist together. Uh, we're gonna do that here in person as well. Uh, we have plenty of space, but we do we, we are asking for reservations just to so we can kind of help spread people out in the room if you are coming. But I would encourage you to really take advantage of that on Friday to mark your calendars and be a part of it. And uh, and Easter as well. We are just trying to limit the room to 25%. It's not that we don't have room for people, and we know that our county is moving forward, and we're excited about that. But we don't want to do anything that would slow it down. So by getting a reservation, it just makes sure we spread ourselves out uh, during those four services for Easter. So thank you very much for doing that. And it's great to see some of you back for the first time, I think, in a while. And I feel very hopeful about the future and what's happening with our numbers and our county and things like that. So it's really good. So thanks for being here. Uh, So listen, it's Palm Sunday where we celebrate what has become known, (laughs) surprise, surprise, as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And I want to talk about that today. Uh, Before we do that, though, our anchor verse for this series, if you're new here at Cross roads. Uh, Every one of our talks are usually part of a series. Sometimes they last four or five weeks. Sometimes they last eight or nine weeks, but usually they're connected. And I try to give one uh, saying from a book in the Bible, one saying from a text in scripture that we could kind of memorize that has some meaning to that we thread through it all. And so our anchor verse for this series is found in this little book called Lamentations, which is in the Jewish Bible, which is the first part of the Christian Bible. It says, the Lord's acts of mercy are not exhausted. His compassion is not spent. Now, how many of us can say we have absolutely had moments in our lives where our mercy has been exhausted, (laughs) right? We say, I've had it, that's it. Here's the beautiful thing. Like this truth that pierces through all the pages of scripture says, no, no, no. 
No, no, no. The way you got to think about the God of the universe that sustains all of creation is that that God's mercies are renewed each morning. Each morning. Great is your faithfulness. That that piercing truth, that's a, that's a two-step forward passage in Scripture, in my opinion, that even in the, in the deepest, darkest despair, when we look at our own lives and we're sitting in the pit and we're holding the shovel, right? God is never, because God fully understands us, God is never done with us. God says, hey, that's all right, kiddo, let's do this. Let's go, let's go. That's the way of love. That's the way of the universe. So this morning, our theme is courage. Uh, it's this idea of again and again, we draw on courage. And I love the way that that's written. We draw on courage. It's not that we look for courage or that we need courage, but we draw on it out of the well that is within us. And here's why I believe that, because my spirituality, my way of understanding God and interpreting scripture is that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Now, some of you are saying, but Ryan, I'm not a member of the church. So that's all right. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. say, well, Ryan, I, this is my first time at church. I've like never been to church. I don't know what to do. I said, well, guess what? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. The image of God is in you. And I'm here to proclaim what is true of you. And our point, our kind of the, the idea of faith is to believe that. And to walk into that truth. And so we, are, we have available to us this image of God, this spirit of God that's coursing through every living thing, every part of our universe. And we can draw into that courage. And courage is, according to the definition, the, uh, according to the, uh, to the dictionary is where you find definitions. You don't find dictionaries in definitions. <laughs> How y'all doing today? You want to start over? Can we roll it back? <laughs> Listen, courage is the ability to do something that frightens someone. Right? You got to step out and do something that frightens you. Any roller coaster people in the room? Y'all love roller coasters? Raise your hand. Nice if you love roller coasters. Just need to know who is foolish. Okay, good. Got it. All right. Right? We all have things that scare us, right? My kids used to say uh, when they were real little, you know, they were like, there's a monster in my closet. Like, no, there's not a monster in your closet. We keep the monsters in the basement. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's absolutely fine. Right? We all have things that we're scared of. We're frightened of. We need courage to walk through. I love this definition too strength in the face of pain or grief. Strength in the face of pain or grief. I think, Debbie, of what your family is walking through, celebrating your dad. Like, that's courage to walk through, to grieve, to have love, to, lo to lose that. Like, I think of so many stories that I've experienced over these, this last year of pain and grief and the courage that we draw on. And it just feels like again and again. I think one of the common ways in which we fear as human beings, one of the things that we're all afraid of if, we're, if we have a healthy psyche, right, a healthy person, is that we generally are afraid to confront people, right? Uh, would you agree with me? Like, that's something that, like, just slip your hand up. you be like, yeah, I'm not a big fan of confrontation. I don't like to be confronted. I don't like to confront people. If you're wired to confront people, uh, that's okay, uh, but it's a little weird, right? I mean, most of us don't get up in the morning and go, I just hope there's somebody I can confront today. I'm just feeling an emptiness in my life. I need to confront someone, right? But here's what the challenge is, right? For for Jesus, right, and following Jesus and, and this way of Jesus that's become known as Christianity, maybe you don't like that word, I'm okay with it, I understand, but this idea of following the way of Jesus often involves and is really foundation, the foundation of it is confronting the darkness of our world. 
It's confronting those spaces that push against God's vision for the world. And God's vision for this world would be what, what Scripture oftentimes and throughout the Jewish uh, Bible would be this idea of justice, God's vision for the world. But it's not justice the way we think of it. When we think of justice, we think of punitive justice or retributive justice. You did this uh, wrong, so we'll put you in jail for this amount of time, and then we'll say you're reformed, but then we'll take away some of your rights when you get out to show that you really aren't reformed, right? I was just sneaking that one in for you. I don't know. But, but God's vision, the vision when God says justice, and you go look at the big themes of Scripture, it's really this idea of distributive justice, that God's idea of justice is really grounded particularly in land. It's very interesting. Like the, 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 and, and the microcosm of that, the parable of that, the story of that would be the distribution of land to like the 12 tribes of Israel and how they're given a, a parcel of land and a family has land and that, that land is never to leave, never to leave that family. And we know that that's not the case, that it happened. But this distributive justice, this idea of, the, of, of everyone being treated equitably, of everyone being treated and recognizing their space and their plot and their, their home here on this world, that God would say, the world is mine, mine, <laughs> and you are stewards of it to care for it and to distribute it justly, right, for everyone to benefit from. And so the, the reality is, like, without this idea of courage, we can't confront what, what opposes God's vision for this world, what is opposing God's distributive divine vision, divine justice, without courage, we can't confront it. And that's what Palm Sunday I want to drive home is all about, is Jesus confronting what's happened in his people, in his nation, at his time. So I want to look at some wisdom that Palm Sunday can offer us. And, and Palm Sunday is the moment where we celebrate as followers of Jesus. It's all over the world today. We celebrate Jesus courageously entering into Jerusalem, right? It's, it's called the triumphal entry. And I, I want to focus. This is the point where you should start doodling if you're not a history person, okay? Just doodle away. Just you'll lose me. And then eventually later on, I'll kick back into what, is, you know, what does this mean for your everyday life? You'll jump back in with me there, you know, but... But I want to just, I need to talk about Jerusalem because I don't think we can understand exactly, we don't think we can understand Jesus. And I don't think we can understand Jesus and his entry into Jerusalem if we don't understand Jerusalem. Uh, there's a book called The Last Week. It's written by two scholars, two Jesus scholars, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. And, uh, and, and it's a book that looks at the gospel of Mark and it asks the questions, what does this gospel like teach us about the last week of Jesus and his final days in Jerusalem? And John Dominic Crossan uh, is, a, is, a, is a historical Jesus scholar and he's done a lot of work and I'm indebted to his work and some of his writings for some of the things I'm getting ready to hopefully share and break down uh, to help us understand Jesus and his time and the words that were put on Jesus because they were words that would have been found all around Jesus that we wouldn't necessarily say today. And so here's what I would just say. We have to understand this principle, that Jerusalem and the temple had become the center of what Crossan calls the domination system. And in antiquity, particularly in antiquity, and we see this still today in certain spaces, uh, depending upon how uh, evolved the culture is, but the domination system says that there is a political and economic domination of the many by the few and the use of religious claims to justify it, that this is the way God has made it, right? And so it is, a, it is a system that would take a few people on the top, an upper stratosphere, they would grow in wealth, and they would use then their wealth to control the economic and the political policies, and, and thus dominating the many. 
And then they would use religious claims to make it happen. In the Bible, it looks like this. And this is maybe contrary. This is maybe um, a new way of thinking of some things you might have read in the Bible if you've been a, a reading the Bible for a long time, but we see statements like this in Deuteronomy, that the place that the Lord your God chooses, this is where you're supposed to worship. This is where you bring all your sacrifices. You don't sacrifice any place else but here, right? That's actually an image of this being lived out because Jesus would say, you know, a thousand years later, well, not a thousand years after it was written, maybe a couple hundred years, he'd say, well, time has come on where it doesn't matter whether you worship in this place or that place. And if God's consistent, right, we then like read back in and we understand this framework that's happening. And so this idea of a domination system that uses religion to control and justify political and economic injustice is a huge key for understanding the whole of the Bible. It's a conflict baked right into the Bible, particularly with this city of Jerusalem. Are you with me? Raise your hand up nice and high if you're still with me, all right? Because I'm just getting started on the history of it, right? And I always, I'm not like, I don't do this very often, so, you know, I just going to geek out a little bit here. So hang in there with me. If you start to nod off, just give a love tap to the person, you know, or just rest your head gently. It's okay. I'll wake you up later on. So throughout the Bible, we have a love-hate relationship with Jerusalem, and it goes from Solomon all the way to Roman rule, right? What, what would be a time period of about a thousand years. That this city was a symbol of hope, but it was at the very same time a symbol of oppression and injustice. You see this in like Micah, Micah, who's an 8th century prophet, Micah would write in Micah 1, like, what is the sin of Judea, the country? And this is the answer. Is it not Jerusalem? <laughs> like Jerusalem itself, the city itself, and all that it contained was the sin. And sin is, and, and if you get to know me, I interpret and think about sin at a much bigger cosmic level than the moral kind of white lies that we tell. Right. And so there's this idea, and it forces, and it really does begin, this, this idea of a domination system starts with the person Solomon. So Solomon becomes king, he's the son of David, and, and Solomon builds the temple. And what we know from uh, history is that Solomon put in this temple build, right? And boy, it was an oppressive season. Uh, the taxation that it took, the labor that it took, the forced labor that it took. And it was so oppressive that by the time Solomon uh, ended his life, Solomon had become the richest man in the world. You see, this is not the vision of God. Solomon had become the richest man in the world. All these wives, these palaces, all this stuff. And it was so oppressive that when his son takes over, the people come from the north and they say, hey, listen, like Solomon, here's the deal. You're, or they say to Solomon's son, like your dad, he was... He was kind of a knucklehead. Like, he, he really was impressive. And so, like, we're with you, 100%. We're, we're on Team House of David. Uh, we'll totally vote for, well, we're in. If you will lighten up, <laughs> if you'll just relax a little bit. Like, and so, as the story goes, Solomon's son goes and, and he, he talks to some people and he comes back and says, oh, here's the deal. If you thought my dad was bad, wait till you get a load of me. Right? I mean, he was the first joker, right? I mean, that was the whole thing. Like, he just said, wait till you see what I have to do for you. And this is where the Civil War takes place. The split happens because the people are like, what do we have to do with the house of David? That's what they say. And they set up their own way of worship, their own temple, and they say, we're out of here. And now we have two nations that, that, that are separated forever, right? And so then we enter into this period of time where we have the prophetic voice, so, right, if Solomon and, and, and the, those kings are happening around kind of the late 8th century, you know, we have this emergence of a prophetic voice that speaks to and disrupts, disorients this movement of oppression. And so we can look at these prophetic voices in, in Scripture, 
And we see them speaking up like Micah saying, what's the sin of Judea? Is it not Jerusalem? But there's also the vision within it that one day God's going to restore it. One day God will, from God's holy hill, right? All this is ancient language to recognize that one day God's vision for this world will come about and it'll come about through Jerusalem. And so it happens and goes on. But during this whole time, make no mistake about it, the oppression that's happening is seated right in Jerusalem. And they're doing it as an autonomous nation. It's a single-layer domination system. You've got the king, the high priests. You've got the whole uh, religious structure that is imposing on people a way that you have to do it because this is the way God has it set up. And, And it's producing all kinds of pain and hurt and injustice. Well, then comes along the Babylonian exile in 586. 586, the city, Jerusalem, is uh, ransacked by the Babylonians. The temple is destroyed. And there's an interpretive voice that tries to make meaning out of tragedy and says, see, this is what happens when you disobey God. And in that meaning, we now see, okay, now, now what they do is they take the best and the brightest. The Babylonians were no fools, right? They took the ruling class that could actually organize and manipulate the people. They took them out of the city and brought them back to Babylon. And they were there for 50 years. And then there was a change. The Persians come into control, and the Persians say, hey, listen, like, you can go back to your homeland if you want. And we see this story brought about uh, where, uh, where Nehemiah comes back, rebuilds the walls around the city, and then what's the first thing that happens? <laughs> what do they do? What do they build? The temple. We get the second temple. It's a fraction of what the first temple was, but nonetheless, you got to build that temple back up because the temple was the center of local government. It was the way in which we controlled people. Like at the end of the day, I really honestly believe that's the tension we're seeing here. So the temple gets rebuilt, sacrifices are put back into place, and, and this is, and it, it, again, it just devolves. It, it goes back into this oppressive cycle. But the high priests and the temple authorities are put in there by the empires that control them. So you have the Persians and the Medes and then eventually the Greeks and Hellenistic countries that are overseeing. They're the overlords, the empire. But the, the high priests, the temple authorities are all serving under them, and it's just continuing to create this tension, right? So we fast forward a few years, three, 400 years. In 164, we have the Maccabean Rebellion, a, a, history, a family of priests that said enough is enough, and they throw off the Hellenistic Empire. And this is the story of uh, Hanukkah, if you're familiar with that story, kind of the revolt. And, and they come in and they say, no more rules. So for 100 years now, it goes back to a single domination system, which is just the high priest, the ruling class, but there's no, there still is this issue of the silence of God. There still is this issue of injustice taking place. There still is this issue of power being centralized and, and, and wealth and it not being distributed, not being a part of God's vision for this world. So that lasts for about 100 years. And in 64, a new superpower comes on the scene, the Romans. So what do the Romans do? They conquer Jerusalem and they establish the local religious authorities. They put a new high priest in place and they say, okay, you all are in charge. What you have to do is keep the peace and keep the money flowing to Rome. That's all we want you to do. And so so now this is where Jesus is going to walk into. This is the life that Jesus is going to walk into. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of conflict internally between the two nations, Israel and Judah. Now, Now you have this conflict of Roman rule Right? Occupying the land, the religious leaders towing this line between getting Rome what they want to keep the peace, right? And then serving the people, all this whole circle, right? So the, so the local religious authorities, they stay in charge, but they can't, like any power system, right? They can't keep it together, right? They're arguing, deciding who should be in charge, who the high priest is. They're fighting. Finally, Rome has had enough of it, and they say, okay, forget it. We're going to set up a king of the Jews. And that was Herod the Great. 
So Herod the Great comes in as king of the Jews. He had been converted through marriage in, uh, into Judaism, so he made perfect sense he could be controlled by Rome. Herod the Great, we see the temple that Jesus would have been a part of was built by Herod, this program uh, of building the temple. Herod builds like all kinds of... Uh, all kinds of other structures and kind of lives this extravagant lifestyle and it just continues to build, right? The oppression of the poor, the marginalized, the outsider, while those that live in Jerusalem that have the wealth continue to grow. Now, here's the deal. Herod the Great dies. We're almost done. Hang with me, right? Here, <laughs> it's like, you're not amused. Okay, I'm sorry. Herod the Great dies. And when Herod dies, his three sons, Rome says, okay, we'll divide Herod's area up into three uh, kingdoms, and we'll put a different ruler in charge. And they did this, but again, that didn't work for very long <laughs> because Jerusalem was such a hotbed. They said, hold on a second. No, we can't do that. It's not working. So they remove him, and eventually they put a Roman governor in. And so they, they send down a Roman governor, and it, in Jesus' day, that Roman governor is Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate, it, well, there's two, but at the time of Jesus' ministry is Pontius Pilate. And so Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. Like, this is one thing. Everybody got to understand. This is huge to get what, what's happening here on Palm Sunday. Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. He doesn't want to live in Jerusalem. Why would a Roman uh, elite want to live in Jerusalem? No, he doesn't want to do that. They have disdain for the Jewish people. So what he does is he lives in Caesarea by the sea. How many, like, this sounds good, right? Like, I'll take a house there, please, a little condo, a VRBO in Caesarea by the sea, right? So he lives in this beautiful villa, and here's what would happen. Like, Pilate and the Romans would come in full force at times when they had to, and that was it. So particularly during the festivals when the city would emerge, so what happens, because Pilate's not living there, that's not where, where he's going to be. The seat of government, the center, what is what? It's the temple and the religious structure and system. They're in charge, but they're now part of a two-layer domination system. Double the oppression, double the fun, double mint gum. That's what's going on here, right? So you have the Romans that are oppressing, and then you have the religious leaders that are in charge, that are trying to keep the peace, navigate what does it mean to do all of this stuff. So you have Rome imperial rule, and then in Mark, which is where we're going to look today, says... Chief priests, elders, and scribes. That's Mark's key phrase. When you see Mark say chief priests, elders, and scribes, this is code word for the few who ruled at the top locally. These were the ones. And they worked in such a way, and, and Jerusalem functioned in such a way that the wealth of the whole nation, the wealth of every tribe, the wealth of that whole region flowed into Jerusalem. It was the way it was set up. It flowed into Jerusalem, stayed in Jerusalem, or it went to Rome, that's it. It's because all the landowners, all the people that had scooped up all the land, through they manipulated their way around the, the laws that had been established by their ancestors to how they could grab land. So all of the landowners, they didn't live out on the land. They didn't work the land. They had people who did that. They had day laborers. They had tenant farmers. So they lived in Jerusalem. So all of their wealth, all their income flowed into Jerusalem. Local taxes on agriculture, about 20% of the gross national product, that would come into Jerusalem. The annual temple tax, that would come into Jerusalem. Every male of a certain age had to give basically two days wages. That was the temple tax it would flow in. And then you had imperial taxes, right? So when you hear uh, in the gospels, you might hear these phrases, tax collectors, they were disdained. Those would be the imperial tax collectors who were working in Rome. And make no mistake about it, they were a necessary part of the temple construct as well because it allowed the temple to function when people paid their taxes to Rome. And then one of the great influxes of money and power and wealth would have been the annual festivals. So Jerusalem maybe had 50,000 inhabitants, on a festival week like Passover, it would surge to 200,000. 
four times the size. Imagine that. Some of you, how many of you lived in Loveland more than, say, 20 years? Raise your hand up and I say, you lived in Loveland for 20 years. Like, you all, you're the ones I talk to, you're like, this place is going to hell in a handbasket. All these people, we used to be able to drive down 34 and never had any traffic, right? <laughs> Could you imagine, like, a week where, like, another 150, 200,000 people show up in town? Y'all would lose your mind, right? Be like, I'm not going anywhere, right? And so that's what would happen at these annual festivals. Now, the temple authorities, I say this to say, don't hear me say that the chief priests, the high priests, the scribes, that these were horribly immoral people. They could have been very loving, loved their families, took care of them. The point is, in this type of a domination system, they shaped, they enforced, and they benefited from this two-layer system. That's the context. So you have this elite class of people living in Jerusalem, and then you have, and they're dominating, oftentimes through religious language, those that would live outside Jerusalem in the hill country and out into villages. Richer are getting rich, poorer are getting poor. And this is the scene of Passover. This is the climate. And so on Passover week, we have to realize that there were two processions happening, not just one. The first procession that would have happened that same day would have been Pilate's arrival. Because remember, Pilate doesn't live there. So there's this huge festival. All these people are going to be coming into town. Pilate's like, oh, I got to go to Jerusalem. And so what does he do? He packs up a garrison of Roman soldiers and he packs them in and they come from Caesarea Maritime, which is west of uh, Jerusalem. And they travel south and then they come into the city from the west side. West side, right? That's what they do. And as they come into the city, there is a procession, and we have to think about imperial power and imperial theology. You have to get this picture in your mind, the sights and sounds and smells of this thousand Roman soldiers marching into town, waving their swords, waving the golden eagle of Rome, shouting the titles of imperial theology, that Caesar is the son of God, that Caesar is Lord. We have all these inscriptions. This was the language that was given to Caesar Augustus that passed on to Julius Caesar and now and just continued to move forward. All this language, Lord and Savior is Caesar. Caesar brings peace on earth, the peace of Rome. This is what it was all about. In fact, Caesar had been thought to have been seen being ascended into heaven after his death. Caesar was thought to have been born from the god Jupiter who impregnated the human Atia. And so that was the myth that carried on. So Caesar is God, son of God. That's the procession. You have to imagine that happening. And who's out there receiving Pilate? Or is it the peasants? It's not a trick question. No. <laughs> who's out there receiving Pilate? Well, certainly it's the religious elite. It's the, it's the aristocracy. It's the people that have to keep the peace that are benefiting from this little arrangement. So they're out there greeting. But what's happening? Over on the east side... You have Jesus coming down from Galilee, traveling through the hill country, and he's coming in from the east side, making his entrance in, in a counter procession. And the only way that we can fully understand Jesus' entrance into the temple is when we get that whole matrix with which Jesus is functioning. And so when he comes in, Mark 11 tells us about his entrance. It says that you're near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And that's where Lazarus and Lazarus' family lived, his friends, where he stayed with during this holy week. It says, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately on entering it, you're going to find a colt tethered there, a little baby donkey that nobody's ever rid on. I want you to grab it and bring it to me. And if anybody says to you, hey, why are you doing this? Just tell them, hey, the master has need of it and he'll bring it back. Don't worry about it. Just, he'll take care of it. So they went off and sure enough, they found a colt tied up to a gate just outside on the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders said to him, hey, whoa, 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 what are you doing? 
What are you doing untying that colt? And they said, well, they said just what Jesus had said. Oh, the master needs it. And they said, okay, take it. <laughs> so they took this colt, they brought it to Jesus, they put their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. So immediately the imagery is Pilate on a war horse, Jesus on a little baby donkey riding into the city of Jerusalem. Two programs at odds. Two ways of living. Two ways of seeing the world. Two ways of understanding this world and justice. The power and violence of Rome, the forgiveness, the peace of Jesus. And so Jesus' entrance hearkens to Zechariah chapter 9 that says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king, righteous and victorious, That word righteous, you should always understand and recognize that's a throwback to this idea of divine justice. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then we get an understanding of the vision of this king, of this kingdom. It says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. So one rides into town proclaiming only through war, only through violence, only through power, can we maintain peace? And one coming in saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to take away all that stuff. That's the vision. So it says in Mark that many people spread their cloaks out on the road and others grabbed leafy branches and they had them cut from from the fields and they were waving. So you have two symbols, right? You have this symbol of Rome, the Roman eagle on gold stands being carried in, the sun glistening, and then you have the palm branches that have become a national symbol of the, of the nation being wove, waved. And it said that those preceding him, Mark tells us, as well as those following, they kept crying out, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that is to come. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus comes and the people are crying for a kingdom, interestingly enough, that looked like before the temple was built. There was no temple in David's time. They're calling out for this kingdom that would come. And so I don't want us to miss this today. Please don't miss this. That Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was an act of courageous, nonviolent resistance to the domination system of the day. We cannot and we should not pull this out of its matrix, out of its context. We shouldn't take the, the words, Savior and Lord, the peace that God brings, the kingdom of heaven. We should not take those out of their context and not recognize that this is a direct assault on the Roman way, this way of oppression, this way of injustice. This, this culture that would crucify hundreds of people, leave them out as a, as a reminder, this is how peace is maintained. And Jesus knew full well what this was going to cost him. This is why we say it was a courageous act to stand up to this power. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Pilate had no choice, no choice historically what to do with Jesus. And we know it was nonviolent for this reason, okay? Historically speaking, we know that it was a nonviolent resistance because had it been violent, they would have crucified all of Jesus' followers. That's how it worked. But they knew it was nonviolent. And you have this encounter with Pilate and Jesus where it's like, well, if, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be here right now, setting me free, revolting, but they weren't. And so Pilate says, well, we'll just take the leader, we'll put him up on a cross, we'll make an example out of him, and the followers will dissipate. And you know what? If they come back around, we'll do it again in another five years. But there was no reason to waste a cross and Roman soldiers and metal and iron on people that weren't going to revolt like that. Just take the leader. 
They say, okay, great, Ryan, we're bezel. But what about tomorrow? <laughs> that's really interesting. Maybe you would say that's even not even interesting. <laughs> but what about my life after Palm Sunday? Well, one of my values, one of our values here is your Monday is as important as my Sunday. <laughs> that I don't have a Sunday, I don't have work, our team doesn't have work here if we don't have your Monday to think about because that's what this moment is about. It's about your everyday normal life, what God's calling you into. So here's what this means for you and for me in our framework of spirituality and Christianity as peacemakers is that to follow Jesus, to be a peacemaker, means that we courageously follow Jesus into the Jerusalems again and again and again. Because Jerusalem is always the place of confrontation of the evil and the systemic, uh, radical, like darkness in this world that is against God's vision. And that plays out in little areas and small home areas like our families, our neighborhoods. It can happen in our workplaces. It happens in our structures and our systems all around us. And the call of Jesus is to walk in peaceably, but to resist, to resist the program of this world, the values of this world. And whenever we do that, that's where walking into Jerusalem, that is the place of death and resurrection. That's the place. In our confronting, in our courageously confronting the unrighteousness, the, the things that oppose God's vision for the entire world, all of God's creation, it's always a place of death and resurrection. I know this in my life to be true. I can't tell you how many things have died so that something new could be resurrected as I've walked into a space and realized, oh man, I'm, I'm in the middle of this domination system. I'm benefiting from it. And so this question of where do we sit in today's domination system is very important as a church, as Christians, as, as, as a global movement of Christianity. Where do we use God's name in vain to continue to oppress people that look different than us, that worship different than us, that speak different than us? Where do we just say, well, that's just the way it is. Your personhood, sorry. That's just the way it is. And where do we use religion to continue to justify the oppression and unrighteousness? How do we think about it politically and economically? Well, that's just the way God established it. These are tough questions. How do I benefit from? How do I shape and even enforce it? I, I have to come in a space of humility and repentance and, and recognize I'm, I'm, I might not be a part of it in this area, but maybe I am in this area or this area. The only way that happens is if I just sit and reflect and I look at with an open heart, where am I in this? So the question today is, what procession are you in? And I think all of us, you know, the fact that you're sitting here or that you're tuning in online, you know what you're going to say? You're going to say what I'm going to say. Oh, I'm in the procession of Jesus, dummy. I'm here. Maybe. I feel like I went to church for a long time and I was in the wrong procession. I feel like I got a really good education in the Bible and how to read the Bible and I grew up in it and I found myself in the wrong procession, continually oppressing people that were different than me not really understanding this way of Jesus, this program of Jesus. So I think maybe a, a really good question is, that isn't so confrontive, is what procession do you want to be in? What procession do you want to be in? I want to be in that procession that resists the violence of our world, that resists the antichrist way of creating and sustaining peace through power and violence and guns and war and 
and insiders and outsiders because I believe that program, that path into Jerusalem, which always leads, <laughs> always leads to death and resurrection, will make me and the world a better place. Because when we, when we follow that procession, we find the courage to oppose the domination systems of our world and it moves us closer and closer and closer to the divine vision of distributive justice and prosperity and security in our world. It's the kingdom that's now but not yet. Maybe you've heard it said that way. That's kind of the religious church way of talking about it. It's Jesus saying, the kingdom is among you. It's right here, but yet it's not realized fully. Micah talks about this. Eighth century prophet Micah says, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. I don't believe that this is some far off, like after Jesus comes back and kills all the bad people vision. This is what God is doing right now through us the invitation to participate, that one nation shall not raise the sword against another, nor will they train for war again. They'll sit under their own vine trees, right? They'll sit under their own space. They'll have their place. This is distributive justice, right? That everybody will have their own land. Distributive prosperity, the imagery of vines and fig trees, that goes way above subsistence living. This idea of distributive security, that doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter what race you are. doesn't matter your sexuality. doesn't matter uh, how, what you do for a living. doesn't matter what, what uh, descent you are in terms of internationality. It doesn't, all that stuff that produces pain and, and fear, that's all gone under the program of Jesus. That nobody has to be afraid. No one. This is the entry into Jerusalem. This is the invitation honestly look at our lives and say, which procession am I in? And which one do I want to be in? So what's God inviting you into today? So we spend a few minutes here wrapping things up. I just wonder if maybe the Spirit of God is inviting you to commit to just understanding the domination systems of your day. Like, what do they look like? Where do they exist? What domination systems might I be perpetuating in the closest system of my family at home? How am I benefiting from that? Maybe just pause and reflect and say, where is there injustice? Where is there an unfair distribution? Where is God's vision for this world not being lived out? And maybe it's a call, maybe you're feeling the Spirit invites you to understand the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in a new light, and maybe a bigger cosmic light, in a redemptive plan and pattern for the world, not just a select group of people that happen to grow up in the right zip code, to hear about the right message, to learn how to pray the right prayer. Maybe that's part of the invitation. And I hope that all of us will hear God inviting us to actively resist the temptation to benefit from those domination systems today. And that looks very practical, honestly. It's not buying the cheapest coffee, but making sure the coffee we buy is sourced fairly. It's making sure that we understand our language matters, that we don't call things China virus that then turns into violence towards Asian Americans in our community. I did just say that. I get it. Write the email. I'll probably delete it, so it's fine. But it matters. It matters. <laughs> those systems, those domination systems, it matters. And so we can just make subtle little choices 
being a consumer who's aware of where our clothing comes from as much as we can be and where our food comes from as much. And people say, oh, this is just like liberal nonsense. This is the, <laughs> I think this is the vision of Jesus for our world, for the kingdom of God that understands that we're, we're, God wants for all of us to flourish, all of us as humanity and God's creation. So for the few moments, we have a song called Take Courage. It's just a time to reflect and consider hopefully to hear God whisper through the nonsense of my history lesson today and to understand what Jesus died for was so much bigger and beautiful than me. <laughs> it was for my neighbor. It was for my Muslim friend. It was for the Hindu, for the Buddhist. It was for the Brazilian, for the Filipino. So Lord, open our eyes and open our ears that we might know whether we're holding a palm branch or a Roman eagle, that we might know whether we're holding a palm branch or a sword, that we might know whether we're riding on the donkey or the horse. And the vision that you bring that is consistent, that's trying to break through in the pages of Scripture, that's trying to break through in the history of the church is this beautiful invitation to collaborate. And so, Lord, help us to be a congregation that does not sit and wait for you to intervene in this world, but that we would accept your invitation to collaborate with you in this world to see the kingdom of God flourish, a kingdom of righteousness, of distributive justice, of joy and peace 